Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Fernando Hernandez. Here is where I typically give that one-sentence introduction to, to the guest, to their company. But Fernando, you wear so many different hats that instead of me trying to introduce you, I figured I will let you introduce yourself and all of the the roles that you have. What I want people to know, this is this is my introduction for you, is that as we were talking, I it was very clear to me that you are an energy advocate and more importantly a student of energy. And today we're really going to dig into that. We're going to veer a little bit from my typical podcast where we discuss more of a technology. Today, we're going to focus on the history of the energy transition. And we're going to look at it from your perspective, your observations of this energy transition, which you call the fourth energy transition. And we're going to look at that based on your your current and past knowledge and past experiences. So, Fernando, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and and all those roles that that I want you what what are you most the most exciting things that you're working on today? Yeah, well, Joe, thank you for that introduction. It's it's quite appreciated. I do wear multiple hats on any given day. Uh, so, for example. I'm a business ambassador to Scotland, appointed by the first minister directly, the Honorable Nicola Sturgeon. I'm also a technology mentor for the Net Zero Technology Center based in the UK. Um, Equally, I'm a chairman at the Marine Technology Society. So this gives me a lot of view of what's going on globally with energy. And in addition to that, I'm also an assigned task group lead for the American Petroleum Institute's 17G2 efforts. Moreover, I'm a selected team member for the Gulf Offshore Research Institute in the U.S. And as an author, uh, my energy and market insights are featured in Forbes, Yahoo Finance, OilPrice.com, Market Insider, and Offshore Magazine, just to name a few outlets. And uh, lastly, I'm a principal at Hernandez Analytica and an advocate of energy, technology, and all of the above. Like I said, very many hats, and I I am glad that I did not try and give that introduction. So thank you for introducing yourself to everybody. As I mentioned earlier, we are talking about the energy transition, and I think that that you have this unique perspective because of all of these different aspects that 
of energy that you work on. But in order to really talk about this current energy transition, I, I think we need to first define energy transition and then talk a little bit about that history of energy use. So when we're talking about energy transition, what are we actually talking about? Yeah, so when we're talking about the energy transition, you know, we have to look at the year 1709. And that's when iron smelting came to be. Uh, so 1709 really is the catalyst for the first energy transition before until we get into the plural, which would be the fourth, uh, which was bolstered in 2015 by way of the Paris Agreement. Having said that, 1709 really excites me because that's what Vaclav Smail and equally the energy historian uh, Daniel Jurgen agree as being the, the year that really pushed us to get to 1840. What does 1840 mean? That is when society evolved from an energy standpoint, from biomass, uh, phytomass included, or, or um, in some cases, and geographically speaking, cow dung. And globally, by way of Vaclav Smil's data points, 1840 is when we went above that 5% marker, and that's when we entered the first energy transition. So all that is to say that when we think about energy transition and use the statement, we have to also look at crude oil. That became the next transition. That occurred in 1950, followed by natural gas in 1930. And again, to come back to the Paris Agreement of 2015, that is bolstering the view to go with renewables or better said, primary energies that do not emit CO2. And that's where uh, I'll hand it over to you, Joe, if you have any questions of how we want to navigate the discussion on the fourth energy transition. Yeah, I think that that is, it's important for, for everybody to think about and realize. And we always, we always talk about the industrial revolution as being this this very significant part of human history. And I do find it, I find it interesting that, that we are focused on the year 1709 and specifically iron smelting as being the, the focus on how we look at current energy and how we use current energy. And then that, that kind of, that transitionary state which I want to make sure that, that I'm understanding correctly. What you were saying is that the, the idea of a transition really is when, when that primary energy that we're using ends up with a 5% uptake of the energy mix. So that, that first one was 1840. Before 1840, we were primarily using biomass, and then by 1840, coal was 5% of the energy mix. And, and then you could state, okay, 1840, this is, we are in a new paradigm of energy use. Is that a, is that a fair statement to make? That is absolutely correct. Uh, quite astute there, Joe, because it, it is that 5% threshold that lets you know a new primary energy has entered the fold. And what's interesting about renewables is per BP statistical data released in 2021 that references the primary energies as they stand now, 
renewables at a record high of 5.7%. And that is a bit of a surprise for me, looking at it holistically, the the matrix of energies, being that coal reached 5% in 1840. So why is that uh, a bit interesting to me is because in 1973, we really, or we could say the 70s, we started to see this um, impetus towards renewables and photovoltaic and what have you. And that was birthed after man really landed on the moon. So renewables had had their time to spread their legs and, and really take these strides, but yet they're at 5.7%. Now, there's Different ways to look at this because ExxonMobil was a company that was looking looking at photovoltaic and pushing that technology forward. Uh, the U.S. space program also had that impetus. And so when we look at it from that context, we, we realize that there's still much work to do um, with renewables, which, again, are part of the fourth energy transition. And right now, as it stands, um, coal oil and natural gas are all above 20% of the global primary energy mix. So when we look at this even further, the aggregate of the CO2 emitting energies is at an aggregate sum that goes above 80%. So not only do renewables have to uh, displace their predecessors, but they have to do it by displacing 80% of, of what I just mentioned, the primary energy mix. And so that is a very key point to take away because, again, we're having three transitions that are above 20 percent, that being coal, oil and natural gas. And we have renewables at 5.7 percent trying to reach that. And now if I may just quickly express that when we look at harnessing the power of wind, this really started to come about in Iran or Iran, um, Vaclav Smil details this further, but this occurred in 1100. So by that logic, um, wind has had, let's, we can just round it up easy and say a thousand years to equally stretch its legs. So when we look at this holistic view on energy, it, it becomes apparent that renewables are not facing the impossible task, but they are facing a rather considerable task. Yeah, that is that is a a task indeed. And as you were you were talking and giving those numbers and putting it into this time perspective, it it kind of it it's something that that I'm curious if you've really ever ever thought about. So you said that coal from biomass to coal sounded like it was roughly 1709 to 1840 from coal to oil 1840 to 1915 from oil to natural gas 1915 to 1930 and even if you say today so natural gas to renewables to hit that five percent would you say is 5.7 percent was 1930 to roughly 2020 and the real push for renewables started in in the 1970s really the the beginning of the renewable age if you will i it just it it almost seems alarming to me when we look at those numbers because you go from 
From coal to oil, it took about 80 years. From oil to natural gas, it only took 15 years. But now, from natural gas into renewables, it is a it is a longer process. And it I think that that goes into what you were saying before about really about the current energy mix. What um what comments do you have on that? Yeah, the, the comment I have towards that, um, Joe, is that we're looking at what's going to be a generational push and endeavor holistically. You know, we have to look at energy from a micro standpoint and also from a macro standpoint. And what may fit for one country may not fit for the other. And that's perfectly fine. Um, that, that kind of alludes to this concept we can discuss um, of the energy basket, uh, Joe, when that time arrives. But again, we have to be very sensible of how we approach energy because if we dismantle grids in a very pronounced manner and, and, and try to implement a renewable grid, which by the way, one that exists for millions based on pure renewables doesn't exist. That is 100% based renewables by none of the signatories of the Paris Agreement that does this exist. So therefore, it's imperative that we leave, um, in, in my view, um, interconnectedness to the other primary energies that do emit CO2. So if there is a type of ERCOT situation that's happened in Texas, or as we saw recently in Europe, when the intermittency of wind really became apparent, natural gas was spiking very high, you know, there's still this interconnectedness that countries have to be able to use these primary energies. So that is not to say, you know, we shouldn't go one way or the other, but more to the point of let's look at energy holistically to protect the baseload, but more importantly, to not have a humanitarian crisis whereby we get ahead of ourselves and in the process dismantle. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I just wanted to to clarify real quick, you mentioned the energy basket. Just real quickly, what what are you referring to when you say the energy basket? Absolutely. So the energy basket is this idea of energy isn't zero sum. So for example, my first awarded patent utilized renewables uh, to produce hydrocarbons. And you know, in a pre-Paris Agreement time, that was kind of uh, looked upon a certain way. And after the Paris Agreement, it's still looked upon peculiarly. However, if we are to really take this challenge on with the fourth energy transition, we have to accept that all these different energies right now, they are working in synchronicity as we speak. So rather than be divisive, let's create this, this space of the energy basket to address the needs of today and the needs of, of the year 2200 by not being zero sum and instead focusing on collective solutions. Thank you for that. I think that helps put it in perspective and it, it really is, it is helpful to understand and think about the, the holistic view of energy. And I think that's something that, that I, I also talk about and and the company I'm at Petrolearn we we continually say our our goal is to make your 
your work more profitable and lower environmental footprint because I, I liked a phrase you said there, protecting the base load. And that that really, in my mind, that was one of those things that that wasn't done during the during the the winter freeze and the ERCOT uh, failure because we were taking down baseload power plants in the middle of the winter when there may have been scheduled maintenance. Yeah, but by those being down, we were reliant on intermittent power sources and and other areas that that ultimately a a perfect storm of failure events caused a a very catastrophic catastrophic failure and and very dangerous disastrous situation yeah absolutely you know and that's one of the things that if we think about the energy transition we also have to think about energy security and what is energy poverty right the 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 lack of access to energy uh by some certain people and i myself define it as you know a, a form of energy poverty uh when what happened in spain keeping with the the theme of intermittency there the government had to step in and bail out uh, the consumer because the prices just became really high so we have these developed nations uh the us and now we're speaking about spain on the european side and energy poverty existed because the consumer didn't lose access to the baseload, but the baseload became uh, so expensive that in turn, Spain incurred energy poverty. And it's not something that we would normally associate with developed nations, but I believe the further we go along this fourth energy transition and the more that hydrocarbons are concentrated within fewer hands, and fewer countries, and the accessibility to that energy will become difficult. We know that, for example, over the last several years, um, the amount of oil and gas projects that have been sanctioned has decreased. So when we look at this natural gas um, occurrence where it's hitting all-time highs, it's to be expected because that resource isn't an on or off button. And so having said that, that is a reason we started to see in the market coal starting to be sourced by multiple nations. And that's oxymoronic because the nations that were trying to source coal, they were also signatories of the Paris Agreement. So on one hand, the sourcing of coal, because it's less expensive and, and wasn't going at all times highs as natural gas, allows you know to prevent what one would say the climate crisis. And on the other hand, you're creating a humanitarian crisis because you have to source the CO2. So again, CO2 is going to produce generational impacts that will be felt in 2050 um, by, by the logic of the Paris Agreement. However, in the here and now, that coal is required to keep people alive. So I hope that kind of, uh, you know, I was able to express and elucidate that thought there, Joe. But if there's any questions you have on that, happy to, to explore it further. Yeah, I think that's a it's an interesting dichotomy that that you're talking about there because one one of the things I'm thinking about is as we 
as we are talking and as as everybody is well aware as we are transitioning this transition is from really from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources or a a carbon emitting fuel source into this low carbon fuel source so this is a this is a different transition than before but exactly as you point out the there are there are issues with this or I hate to say issues, there are challenges with this transition because of the things like implementation or the technology or the scalability and the intermittency of the what is becoming the primary installations. They are intermittent fuel sources. So it is a, it's almost like a, a different way that you have to look at this energy transition and how do we how do we balance that difference between between reducing the carbon footprint of our energy while also I I love this phrase protecting the baseload and really as you point out making making it so that we are not living in energy poverty so that we are providing abundant energy for for everybody. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the other thing is, is that I, I don't have a stance for or against renewables or for hydrogen or for geothermal. Um, I think all energy is good energy. Um, and in that sense, eventually we may arrive at the fourth energy transition, but for now that is just an aspiration. The realities are that we have gone through three transitions. So again, to reach the aspiration, I think it's it's really it's great that we're we're endeavoring towards that. And if I may provide an example of a you know by way of being a technology mentor with the Net Zero Technology Center, they're working on a project that embodies the energy basket. So one of the great technologies that they have and that was just field trialed is by motion energy. And so motion energy is able to create tidal energy at sea. And on the seafloor, there's a subsea battery by a company called ECOG. So that way that the energy that will be created for this project that is to be enrolled is the, the energy is not squandered. It, it's, it's used methodically. It's stored in this battery. And then another project partner is Baker Hughes. And then Baker Hughes um, subsea production system. All that means to route hydrocarbons would be powered by renewables and then utilized by having that power. You have telemetry and control and, and the et cetera's that allows you to produce hydrocarbons in a more low carbon footprint type of fashion. And what bolsters this project is the fact that it has buy-in from industry, uh, a company called uh, Premier Oil in the UK. So again, the Net Zero Technology Center, is that's one of my affinities amongst a lot of things. But what I see them doing is, as, as, a, as a center is really pushing the fold, not with rhetoric, not with these press releases of what's to be, but rather with symmetrical skin in the game. So I hope that provided, you know, a, an embodiment and an example of the energy basket in, in, in the way that is to unfold with the Net Zero Technology Center. Yep. That is that is helpful. I 
I am going to play devil's advocate here a little bit. Hitting, hitting, I think you pointed out that currently, let's say carbon emitting elect energies have approximately 80% market share. And it seems really tough with things like, like tidal energy and, and batteries and even, even the solar and the wind. It just, it seems very tough to get to that 80% market share to fully replace the carbon emitting electricities. So I guess how, I guess what are your what are your thoughts on that? How do we ultimately protect the base load while also really getting to that full transition? Absolutely. I think it's going to take um so that was just one example. But uh as I mentioned before, you know, there's a macro and a micro view to energy. Um, you know, another part of going back to the energy basket that's critical, um, it comes down to topography and or bathymetry, geology, and also weather patterns, right? When we look at climate, we're looking at macro. When we look at weather, we're looking at micro. And when we're looking at energy, there's a macro and a micro. So the macro is that 80%. However, you have countries that can tap into geothermal. Uh, They're blessed with that type of energies. Uh, Other countries have hydrocarbon accessibility, Others have, um, if you look at the North Sea uh, off the coast of Scotland, and one of the reasons the wind farm has taken off the way it has in that region is due to the wind patterns that are seen there. So again, when we look at hydro, when we, we look at the topography, but when we start to now have, let's call it a lake, that's bathymetry because now it's underwater. And having access to hydropower, not every country has access to that. So it's understanding, you know, what's your landmass? Does does that topography allow you to have a nuclear station to provide nuclear power? Or is it such that, you know, you do not have the sufficient topography, or you may have the topography, but you do not have the, the weather patterns that support uh, solar installation or wind installation. So when we look at all these different components, every region will have very strong suits. Because again, just because you have wind doesn't mean you're going to have great tidal or, or great currents. And, and that's something to keep in mind is the micro and the macro. And I think so long as we, we try to go from a micro to a macro perspective in terms of looking again at the geology, the topography, uh, and the weather patterns, and harnessing the best of every region, that's what's going to allow us to start to make these inroads whereby the fourth energy transition can get to 20%, where it can get to potentially displacing its CO2 uh, predecessors. So I think there is a solution there. I think there's a way forward. It's just how do we get there, right? And the how goes back to 1709. You know, it was iron smelting. And then by pure substance, we got to 1840 and CO2, we just emitted and emitted. So now it's, we have to look at it differently. We're not in 1840 and we do not have that generational, I would say, view of energy that it just releases CO2. Because when we look at CO2, CO2 is actually 
used in many different uh, applications. Um, for example, for syringes, CO2 is a derivative of that. So it, it, it's all about how we look at CO2 because we can al- almost look at CO2 with sequestration. So if we have a coal plant, but we're sequestering, are we really emitting or are we using geological reservoirs? And, and that's, a, that's another beauty about the geology is when it comes to, and if I may, Joe, just quickly speak about carbon capture storage, is that a country that wasn't rich or had the reservoirs to, to, to tap into hydrocarbons, what's a dry hole? That is to say, you know, you, you, you drilled and, and there wasn't sufficient hydrocarbons to make that a justifiable output of hydrocarbons. With carbon capture storage, it's, it's a bit different. So going back to the coal example, if you sequester that CO2, we're now looking at um, storage as a service, SaaS. So we look at that in software, but we're looking at uh, CO2 storage as a service by way of capturing the CO2. So again, it, it, it comes back to the energy baskets, different components. That's a new take on SaaS, for sure. Well, there's also projects that uh, are looking at CO2 and energy return on investment. And, you know, I'm of the thought of utilizing CO2 metaphorically as data, sticking with the the thought of SaaS. There's there's different threads there to explore, but happy to take uh, your lead on the matter, Joe. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about just the way that you're explaining it and the way that we can really think about the the molecules that we are producing from the ground splitting apart and then letting go in their in their separate ways. Really here talking about pulling the hydrocarbons out, separating it to produce the CO2 and then where that CO2 molecule goes. It is it is very, very much like the the idea of a byte of data and where that byte goes and what it tells you from that that travel. So I it it was a a quippy statement saying that it was a new take on SAS, but I think it is a very it it really really dives into the idea of transferable knowledge and transfer learning when we think about how are we looking at data today and can we can we use that same kind of mentality and that same mental mental map if you will and apply that to something like like the carbon cycle and can we really think about where are those carbon molecules going? And that's it's almost what what the entire carbon market is going to be based on is really being able to follow that carbon molecule from or that CO two molecule from production out of a hole and back into its its metaphorical grave. That being a sequestration reservoir. No, absolutely. And, you know, to to take that further, when we used to look at data 20 years ago, a lot of it was lost on floppy disks, uh, USB drives, 
um, people would put data on CD-ROMs, you know, uh, MP3s. I won't get too nerdy on that, but you, you, you looked at music differently and you put it on a disc as data because you could store over 700 megabytes. So now we have companies like Amazon Web Services and other companies that are taking this data and instead of just putting it out into the ether where it just is misplaced and it's just aggregating and, and piling up and no one's paying attention to it. Now the data is being polished. Now the data is being used in a manner by which we can create dashboards. And now we that's why we have SaaS. Uh, we, we have another company, for example, Salesforce. And what they do is they sell you back your own data because instead of just leaving it in an emitting digital cloud, it now has a new paradigm. It now has value. So metaphorically, CO2 has that data component because we can apply that to the creation of uh, what is fertilizer. And that requires a steam methane reformer. And that's when we get gray hydrogen. And so what I'm getting at is when you create gray hydrogen, your output's going to be CO2 and then hydrogen, right? And so if we look at CO2, we were just, again, looking at it as data. We didn't treat it as, as, as something that had this value to it and to be judicious by it. Um, but now we're having this discussion, and I, I think that's what's very great about this, Joe, is that is gray hydrogen really that bad if we then convert into blue hydrogen and store that CO2? Because, by the way, after the um, reformation process, we now start to talk about generating fertilizer and ammonia. And fertilizers would allow humanity to achieve, a, arguably, reaching 7 billion people on Earth. So we're already creating this fertilizer. Why not sequester it? So when people sometimes display a resistance towards, and, and it's not to generalize, but it, it does happen, of sequestering, what's like, should we just have the CO2 continue to go out into the atmosphere through, you know, a steam methane reformer? Well, the answer is no. Let's store it. Let's be judicious. Let's think differently. We're still going to have to produce this hydrogen not because of this new hydrogen economy that everyone's talking about. But again, we go back to the fact that this is key for fertilizers, and that's what keeps the world running. Otherwise, we could shut that component down of utilizing what, what is, again, the natural gas, I should have mentioned, which feeds into this, is, is composed of methane. So is methane really that bad, or is it really that good? Or do we just conduct an experiment, stop all gray hydrogen, and see what happens with humanity. I'd rather we not even go down that road, but it's, it's food literally for thought based on energy. Yeah, I think that is, it is one of those things that really, if you look at any any aspect of the energy transition and really of, of future energy uses and and even past energy use, really every one of those can be that thought experiment and you can sit there and think about all those what ifs and the multiple different scenarios that could occur. And I think it is from that perspective, it is a, it is a, a, a location where we can end up in analysis paralysis and really be like, okay, well, 
Is gray hydrogen bad? Should we stop doing it altogether? What about blue hydrogen? Is Do we need to start thinking about the pros and cons of carbon sequestration? And I think it it is a a really difficult spot because you don't want to just sit there thinking the whole time and and being in this academic ivory tower of of what ifs and monte carlo simulations you really want to be solving problems providing solutions and and moving forward even if it is falling forward and falling on your face plenty of times but as long as you are moving forward i think that's the important part i i do want to i want to i want to think about this in the perspective of something you said earlier you mentioned that that there are both micro solutions and macro solutions i i think i'm saying it wrong but that had me thinking about something like like iceland i would say iceland has a they have a a great system where they are run almost entirely on hydroelectric and geothermal energy really the only part of their of their energy mix is transportation that requires fossil fuels and then i think about something like the northwest us also has significant hydropower resources but then i go down to texas and there really is there's basically no no potential for hydropower there may be some potential for geothermal if we drill deep enough as in there is potential but there are also other ideas and i guess i guess where i'm going with this is are we when 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 you talk about the energy mix and the energy transition how do you how do you decipher what is a potential for a global solution versus something that really needs to be applied locally i'm thinking of of kind of the food mix and and the food local food movement and trying to think about that what a I'll probably cut some of this. I was rambling for quite a bit there. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to follow along. Um, so if I didn't answer that, I was trying to follow the question. So as you were as you were explaining and as we were talking about these different ideas like gray hydrogen, they something going through my mind was okay. Will that scale? Is that a potential global solution? But I am also wondering about, do we really need to be thinking about, does any one solution scale? I guess, how do we, how do we go about that? Thinking about a, I guess, thinking about the food movement, are we thinking globally? Or are there situations where we can think, locally no absolutely and and with locally you know comes the micro component and i'm glad you mentioned iceland it again it, it comes back to tapping to the best of what you have in terms of again we go to the geology we, we go to the uh, topography and and the weather patterns and really challenging ourselves as as a society 
and as humanity to not think like we're in 1709 or 1840 where we can just let things be because it's easy to let them be. So if we talk about gray hydrogen, for example, things were that way because it was just BOA or uh, business as usual. And with that kind of mentality, we, we didn't have to really force ourselves to be judicious. And that can tend to happen when things are readily available or, or accessible. But in this case, if it, it's really going to take a macro view of this micro perspective to tap into the best of that country's resources by way of the definition that I've given on the energy basket. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad or a good thing, but all it is doing, again, to reiterate, is forcing us to, to do what we haven't really done because we haven't had to look at um, CO2 as potential potential data. For example, there's certain projects, I, I can't really release the names in the public domain, but instead of flaring the natural gas that's coming to land, what there's this country uh, that is about to do is go from um, create a gas to power project. So now this company, an oil company that is publicly traded on the European stock exchange is doing something that I believe is very incredible. It's They're going to now be an, an electricity company fundamentally and provide electricity to a region of this world that typically did not have access to electricity. And I think that's really great because it's also going to have the component of carbon capture storage. So when we look at this stranded gas, right, we can look at that as data. And, you know, by that logic, if we're sequestering the CO2 and creating electricity and the emissions are, are being captured and, and we're being judicious, it, it changes how we were thinking before, right? Let's just flare it. No, let's not flare that natural gas or, or that methane. We can create fertilizer or we can send it through a steam methane reformer and create hydrogen. You can just go into a fuel cell and electrify what you would otherwise have wasted. What a fuel cell does to that hydrogen in its gaseous form, it creates electricity and I think that's there's beauty in that because when you create that electricity, the only thing that you are emitting is water, and that's it. Yeah, that is that's a good take on it, and I think that's a a good way to think about it in terms of the micro versus the macro versus utilizing the resource that is available. It may not be. It may not be the best resource and it may not even be the resource that you wanted, but it is a resource and it is there for really for the taking. It's just a matter of deciding whether you want to utilize it and then finding finding how to take that supply and meet a demand with it. I think that's that's a really elegant, eloquent way that you put that, Fernando. No, I well, I just want to get job. one you're welcome. So I want to get one more one more kind of macro view from you since you you are actively working on projects in Europe, in the UK, in the US. So you have really now and present experience with this whole 
with this whole viewpoint of energy transition and you have the the experience of that local flavor approach versus a development of a technology for a global solution. I'm curious, what are some major differences that you see between, say, how the U.S. is approaching the energy transition and how the U.K. and how Europe are approaching the energy transition? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And I I should have mentioned the European... ENP, they're actually going to deploy this approach in West Africa. So by default, I've now extended into the, the, the one could say the African market with this kind of view to, to sequester as well. Um, but to answer your, your question at its core, um, what we see in the U.S. is the following, right? And I like to follow the data because if you follow the data, you can follow a lot of different things. And, and really see what's not very obvious in, in certain cases. So to, to answer that question, uh, Joe, the U.S.'s refinery throughput is north of 14 million barrels. The United Kingdom is roughly 800,000 um, barrels per day of refinery throughput. So therefore, uh, the U.K. makes about you know 7% of what the U.S. Um, has in terms of refinery throughput. What am I speaking to and what am I speaking about? We're, sp- we're talking about infrastructure. So the U.S. has an infrastructure that if you go along, you know, the Gulf Coast, you're going to see refineries, you're going to see pipelines, you're going to see transmission lines. And that is something that is not very apparent in other uh, European countries, for example, because the totalized output of refinery throughput for Europe is... 11 million barrels per day. So, and that's by way of BP statistical data for 2021, reflecting what's in 2022. So what am I getting at, Joe? The U.S. already has over 1,500 miles of hydrogen pipelines. There's over 1,000 miles of CO2 pipelines. So we are able to industrialize in the U.S., differently, look at CO2 and hydrogen infrastructure differently because those hydrogen pipelines are built specifically for hydrogen. Now, if we look at the UK, there's from a microgrid perspective, and when I say microgrid, I I mean residential. Um, The view is to take a one to five mix ratio of H2, or sorry, hydrogen to natural gas and blend it in that fashion. And there's the, an obvious um, dilemma of embrittlement. The, the metallurgy of, of a pipeline without getting too nerdy is, can it handle that? Well, when we look at the U.S., we say, well, that hydrogen pipeline can handle it because it was designed for that. That CO2 pipeline was designed for that. And just to come really at the crux of this is what really propelled the U.K. on while we we talk about about brand crude is because the North Sea developed in the 1970s thanks to the 40s field. Um, and why am I referencing the 1970s? Because at the same time, the U.S. in West Texas was already investigating and was already injecting CO2 for sequestration purposes, but it was really causing enhanced oil recovery. Granted, some of it does get stuck in the cap rock, the CO2, but this just goes to show the level of development. And per uh, UK release data, over 
95%, and this comes from the oil and gas, the UK Oil and Gas Authority, over 95% of the uh, offshore production uh, in the UK has been realized offshore, meaning in terms of a civilian or a person seeing this infrastructure the way we would see it in the US, it, it's just not there. Uh, and again, why is it not there? We look at the data. The, the U.S. refinery throughput is 14 million, while the U.K. is at 880, or let's just round 800,000 uh, barrels per day. So th- there's a significant significant difference. But nonetheless, I think there's there's a blending of taking the European flavor with the U.S. flavor and trying to use hydrogen very differently. Because again, the, the U.S. D- does use hydrogen for great purposes, there is that market. And so again, it's this different micro to macro view, but nonetheless, I think that's perhaps an advantage of the US is that there's already this existing infrastructure whereby if we do wanna send hydrogen to local communities, we can. We just electrify it with fuel cells, for example, and now a microgrid is being powered by way of hydrogen by fit for function, pipeline and infrastructure that can be bolted onto and or tapped into or interconnected with. I see what you're saying. And I think that is, it's, I I think that's part of really what, what I like to promote and what I think the entire sustainability and renewable energy and the, the R3s really pushes is the idea of repurposing reusing and what i what i heard you saying was that the infrastructure that we have in place really should be part of the solution and that should be part of what we consider as we look at micro versus macro solutions and how we whether it's as a nation or whether it's as a state like texas or whether it's as even a, a community being in Dallas or being in Houston or being wherever you are as a city, how are you actually, how are you seeking this energy transition? You should be utilizing the resources you have available and you should be first seeing what you can do locally and then asking, at least this is my opinion, do what you can locally and then ask, can this be applied at a larger scale. Absolutely, Joe. Absolutely. And and even if it if it cannot, for example, it, it, it doesn't matter. We just need other countries to say, I'm gonna be like Iceland today and tap into the best of what I have available to me. Or we look at El Salvador. El Salvador has, you know, uh, a lot of geothermal potential. So it, it, it's that kind of thinking of of challenging oneself versus having a 1709 or 1840 state of mind is, is what I'm getting at because it's mm-hmm. this generational thinking of emissions that, you know, how we utilize these energies, it, it, it's it's very, very much having to take that generational thinking and go in reverse. But we couldn't do that back then because we didn't have technologies uh, to sequester CO2 and geological reservoirs. And that's why, you know, coal was much more easier to extract because you didn't have to liquefy it as you would with natural gas. So all of this really is generational. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just 
means we have to accept that challenge of being creative with energy and technology. But again, I can't stress it enough, being judicious about the baseload. Yep. Yep. I like it. Well, with that, let's change gears a little bit and jump into a little bit of tangential questions. These are the final questions that I ask all my guests. The first one being, what is the most important book you've ever read? So if you would have asked me that last year, I would have given a different answer, but you're asking it right now. I had to write a research paper and I'm a, as people have seen, I've spoken about Vaclav Smil. Uh, his book, Energy Transition, is really one that I advocate that everyone at least try to read. And, and that's what really awakens one to the data and, and, and the generational impact of, of the three transitions to achieve the fourth one. So I think that that is a very, um, I, I can't recommend that book enough to people to read because it also predates the Paris Agreement. So Vaclav Smil was already thinking in these terms without having external factors potentially skew his vision one way or the other. Thank you for that. I think that is a, a good good recommendation and definitely a one that I'll be adding to my list. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? I think as a society, we're, we're going to have to look at what's already evolving, right? We look at COP26, Conference of the Parties, that was recently held. Um, and we're already seeing a coalition of countries that are emitting countries, such as uh, China and India, not looking to uh, decarbonize. And it's what I call carbon dioxide as a weapon. We can discuss this maybe in a different show. But all that is to say is the language that came out of COP26, coal was not to be... Um, phased out, but phased down, and Iran or Iran echoed the sentiment and backed this ideology that coal is going to have a role in the future. So that, to me, brings me to, if I may say the following, we, we know what OPEC looks like, but do we know what OEC looks like? And what is OEC? An organization of emitting countries. And Iran has now shown that they're engaging uh, with um, China and India, and they understand that, you know, oil as a weapon, uh, since evidence since 1973, now CO2 as a weapon is much harder to contain because it spreads unhindered atmospherically. So my answer, in short, is every country will take a different stance and a different pathway. And if we start to have a band of countries one nation may reach 2050 uh, entirely. Sorry, may, may reach its 2050 targets to not emit, but atmospherically spreading CO2, it's like having a pond and you're just throwing um, ounces of Kool-Aid or, or food coloring and that clear water turns whatever color the Kool-Aid is. That is a very interesting take and one that I would like to dive in more but I think that is that is definitely a full show on itself that that we can discuss at a later time. the The last question is, 
what one question do you have for me? Oh, yeah. I, I was ready for this one uh, in a good way. Um, how, how do you see, uh, and I'm just being candid here, uh, how do you see geothermal, um, you know, for example, in El Salvador? It, it, it's just one of those countries I visited and just saw its topography and, and, and the volcanic activity and just would really love to see what you see your potential there in terms of, uh, you know, petrol urn and, and just in general with the technology that, you know, in the geothermal space. Yeah. Yeah. So I am, I am full fledged geothermal. I think that geothermal is the energy of the future. And I say that with, with full humility that there's a long way to go with geothermal. I say that with the full understanding of it being the energy basket part of the energy basket as you as you use and as it as you've explained. With that being said, I think geothermal will be that strong base load and almost to to complement that geothermal is it is firm it is resilient it is it is a foundational energy that i, I guess to to anthropomorphize it even more geothermal doesn't need protecting it just needs some people in its corner backing it because once you have a geothermal power plant on provided that you manage the reservoir properly, it'll keep going. Lardoredo, which is in Italy, I'm sorry for mispronouncing it, it has been producing energy since 1904, long before we even knew how to manage a reservoir. And there have been some hiccups there and in the geysers, but geothermal is is going to be that firm foundation that we need for a net zero and net zero electricity for the world. And I realize there there's many layers to this onion that need to be peeled back, but there are new ideas and new technology that one one phrase you may have heard lately is geothermal anywhere and with with as many technologies as there are being developed and with my understanding of the subsurface and of thermodynamics and of of thermal modeling i i do firmly believe there are there are multiple of these technologies that can and will succeed it's just a matter of time i I think I need to get off my soapbox now because no, no, <laughs> it I, is. It, I know I asked a question, but you, you, you hit, you hit it, you hit it very well on different points. Now I, I know I'm not the interviewer here, so but <laughs> you, you used a very key term there, and it's time. And I think these discussions we're at a juncture in society, a juncture in technology, and a juncture of uh, being the best stewards that we can of of the environment that we're, we are having the time to have these discussions because the, I think it's the right time now, right? If we were trying to discuss this uh, 
40 years ago or 50 years ago, I don't think we, we would have time on our side for these discussions. So yep. thank you for, for, for elucidating that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Fernando, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Let's just protect the baseload. As, as, as I say that full-heartedly, I experienced, I didn't say it, but I'll say it now, I experienced ERCOT with, with an infant. And that's why I'm, I'm very passionate now about, uh, you know, having these discussions so that we can look at the baseload differently. Because if things would have gone a bit, let's just say, not very favorable, I have an infant that I'd have to answer to. So that's, yep. that's it. That's all I have there. So now maybe people can truly understand why there's that deep ingrained, uh, not passion, but conviction on the energy basket. Yes. Yep. Well, thank you for that. And, and thank you for everyone for joining us on this episode of the energy transition solutions podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories of the energy industry and keep up to date with all of us, connect with us at OGGN.com or find us on LinkedIn. If you're into free stuff, I know I am, go visit the Canon co-working space and mention OGGN. They'll give you a free day pass whenever I'm in Houston. That's where I always end up working. And, and it's also where OGGN hosts their monthly industry mixers. So go to the Canon, mention OGGN, see what I'm talking about. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story you want to share, send me an email. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.